Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show. You're back with Jay Shapiro. We have had an unprecedented cycle of elections in the last two and a half years. And in the, in the midst of this cycle, the Institute for National Security Studies, better known by its initials, the INSS, highlighted in its report called Challenges to Societal Resilience. They note, and I quote, an accelerated trend of weakening social solidarity within social groups, between social groups and the state, and between the individual and the state, characterized by deepening public disputes stemming from diverse worldviews, especially regarding the necessary balance between national and religious values and democratic, liberal, secular ideals, aggravated even further by divisive, extreme, and superficial political discourse, unquote. In other words, the INS is saying is that our society is falling apart. That's the bottom line. And it concluded with a warning of risks and crises in four main domains. Undermining of the delicate balance regarding Israel's identity as a Jewish and democratic state, especially in its tilting toward the Jewish pole, P-O-L-E, at the expense of the democratic pillar. The deepening of social and economic gaps, the transformation of the public discourse in Israel into a violent struggle of hatred and exclusion of the so-called other, and the consequent weakening of societal resilience in Israel, unquote. In other words, the INSS is saying in simple words that Israeli society is falling apart. Now, these conclusions were echoed by the Jewish People Policy Institute in its annual, annual what they call Pluralism Index, It was released six months ago. This year, the study focused on the attitudes of and toward the Arab and Haredi sectors, which respectively compromise more than 20% and 12% of Israel's population. In other words, the Arabs are roughly 20% of the population, and the Haredi, or the ultra-Orthodox, or 12% of Israel's population, together constituting a full third of all Israelis. It's roughly 32%. The report notes they cannot be dismissed 
as small minority groups, such as the survey's revelations present very worrisome challenges to the social cohesion of Israeli society. Again, in other words, according to this report, Israeli society is falling apart. So that's two different organizations. The Institute for National Security Studies and the Jewish People Policy Institute came to the same conclusion that our society is falling apart. And they pretty much um, divide society into two parts. Uh, one third of is Arab and Haredi, and the other two thirds are the rest of society. Now, uh, they arrive at these uh, conclusions by making all kind of surveys among all kind of people. And while 88% of left-leaning respondents believe that all Israelis, including Jews and non-Jews, share a common future, only 28% of its right-leaning citizens are so inclined. In other words, people on the right uh, feel that the uh, we don't have a common future, according to these uh, surveys. In the political realm, the study reveals this, and I quote, secular Jews aspire to political part partnership with Arabs, but not with Haredim. Religious and Haredi Jews aspire to political partnership with secular Jews, but not with Arabs. Let me repeat that in different words. In other words, According to them, the secular Jews like to be friendly, friendly, if you will, with Arabs, not with Haredim. They feel closer to the Arabs, but the Haredi Jews and the religious aspire to be closer to secular Jews than with the Arabs. And on the social level, the reality is that different ethnic and religious groups generally live in distinct residential areas and attend separate schools such that interaction between them is low. And that is pretty much true. I mean, um, religious kids go to, to religious schools, secular kids go to secular schools, and Arabs go to Arab schools. So while these reports note that according to some, this separation reduces tension and friction, it also raises the concern of others that our lack of familiarity with one another is responsible for growing suspicion of an animosity toward those dissimilar from oneself, whether Arab or Jewish. And that is very interesting. In other words, <coughs> what they're saying is you go to a school that's mostly the kids in the school the same as you are, parents are the same as you are, so there's a growing uh, foreignness, if you will, with other groups. And uh, it's interesting, as disturbing as the implication of these observations are for Israeli society, 
these uh, people who did the research cautioned that these trends could also impact negatively on the increasingly sensitive relation between Israel and diaspora Jewry. In other words, not only are the various portions of the Israeli society, Arabs and Jews, whether Haredi or not Haredi, not only are they getting more separate from each other, but there's a, a possible increase in the separation between Israel and diaspora Jewry. <clears throat> now that relationship is indeed at risk. Over the past several years, a series of studies have revealed an ever-increasing degree of distancing from Israel on the part of Jews around the world, particularly among Jewish millennials in the United States. In one such survey, only 38% of those under the age of 35 indicated that Israel's existence was very important to them, compared to 70% of those 65 and older. Now, my uh, these are what the... the, uh, the the results of these surveys. In other words, younger Jews, according to these surveys, are less related to uh, related to Israel, those 65 and older. Now, I, there are a lot of reasons for this. And I think one of them is that uh, the older Jews remember what it was like before there was the Jewish state and what it was like to be Jewish when there was no Jewish state. The younger people have grown up and there is a Jewish state, and this affects their attitude toward the state. They got used to it. Many attribute their sense of alienation, what they perceive they perceive of Israel's indifference to the liberal values they hold dear. Uh, some of what they refer to as the ongoing occupation and others to the obstinate refusal of the Jewish state to recognize the non-Orthodox streams to which the vast majority of affiliated Jews abroad belong. In other words, the and we see this, by the way, in the results of the present election. I saw in the newspaper this week that conservative and reform groups are very upset about the fact that the Prime Minister Netanyahu is considering um, making one of the members of the Haredi parties in charge of affairs with the diaspora. And Reform and Conservative Jews don't like that idea. The real issue is much deeper than any of these factors, I think. More than half of the younger generation question in one major survey expressed discomfort with the very idea of a Jewish state. In other words, a lot of American Jews who grew up while there was a Jewish state, they don't really think much about it, what this Jewish state really means. And that is a tremendous change in the attitudes of the older people, many of whom who grew up when there was no Jewish state, or the Jewish state was uh, first first came into being, and the it also has to do, I believe, with the lack of Jewish education 
particularly among the young people. In other words, there were Jews who, um, you know, the older generation, who did not get much of a intensive Jewish education, but they felt very Jewish. Today, I believe that those who don't get a Jewish education among the younger people don't feel very Jewish for a lot of reasons, having to do with where they live and where they work and things of that nature. When I was a kid, a lot of people who uh, were not religious at all or not very religious uh, felt very Jewish. They lived in Jewish neighborhoods and so forth. That is no longer true. So there is a disparagement between the older generation and the younger generation and their feelings toward Israel, regardless of their Jewish education. We're living in a different society. By the way, we're living in a different society here in Israel also. I have occasion to talk to my own grandchildren and, and some, sometimes even the language they use is something um, I am unfamiliar with, and they have to explain to me what they mean when they say certain words, or they come up with expressions I've never heard before. And we're, I'm talking among young people here in Israel, even among young religious people, like some of my grandchildren. So there is a, a diversity and feelings toward Jewishness and toward Israel between the younger generation and the older generation. <clears throat> so I, I leave this subject uh, just for the listeners to think about. I want to go on to a different topic now. A, a, a deal is being made between Israel and Jordan. Uh, Israel and Jordan will cooperate on, an eco, on the ecological rehabilitation restoration and sustainable development of the Jordan River. The uh, Interesting enough, uh, if you travel along the Jordan River on the Israeli side, you cover very, very little uh, population. If you travel along the Jordan River on the Israeli side, it's pretty barren. If you travel along the Jordan River on the Jordanian side, and I've done that several times, it's filled with uh, little communities, one one right after the other. So uh, they, um, the Jordanians live closer and in greater density to the Jordan River than the Israelis do. So Jordan and Israel work to remove pollution sources in their respective territory with the construction of wastewater treatment Facilities. In addition, it's, um, communities living along the river will be connected to advanced sewage infrastructures as part of the joint declaration. Uh, in my estimation, this will um, help the Jordanians uh, more than the Israelis, because more Jordanians live along the Jordan River than Israelis do. Now, the, uh, this declaration between Jordan and Israel stated that the river's restoration expected to create new opportunities for cooperation between Jordan and Israel with the goal of improving quality of life 
on the both sides of the river. Now, the Jordan River is uh, 251 kilometers long between the countries. The Jordan River flows through Lake Kinneret in Israel's north to the Dead Sea, and it's a natural border between Israel, including the West Bank and the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan on the east. Due to human activity, the river has become what they call a dumping ground of waste, raw sewage, saline waters, and fish pond waste. The river is so heavily degraded, it has lost 95% of its historical flow over the last 50 years. An estimated 50% of the river's biodiversity has been lost, and the river is in a terrible state. And you can see this and if you drive along the Israeli side. There are times when the, the river is so shallow and so narrow, you really can't even see it practically. Now, the several sections and streams of the Jordan River were declared contaminated by the health ministry over the past decade. Uh, and uh, the, it's, it's very, very sad. It's, it's, in, it's a river that's uh, historically famous, and uh, crossing the Jordan is, is an expression used by many of the Western religions to talk about uh, making a change in your life. The Jordan River Restoration deal appears to be one of the last action of the um, present uh, government ministry here in Israel because the head of the ministry is changing hands to a different party. Up to now, it's been run by uh, the Merits Party, which didn't get any votes in the election this time, and it's going to be replaced by the Likud. And um, a river free from hazards, clean and healthy, will provide health and prosperity for all the populations surrounding it, and it's important that it not become a political football. Cleaning up the pollutants and the hazards, restoring water flow, and strengthening the natural ecosystems will help to, to adapt to the climate crisis. So it's not important who the minister is. It's important that the minister, whatever party he represents, knows what he's doing and why he's doing it. So, uh, by the way, Israel joined what's called the U.S. Zero Emissions Initiative, and the goal is to reset net emissions by the year 2050. So what, they, what they're doing is fighting against the climate crisis and all kinds of things that I personally don't understand much about, but um, the countries will develop and publish a roadmap and, and uh, on how they're going to improve the uh, the climate and improve the climate by including what's happening on the ground. Finally, the last thing this week's program uh, is approximately 1.1 million people across German-occupied Europe were murdered in the Auschwitz-Birkenau camp. Among the 1.3 million people deported to Auschwitz were more than 200,000 children. The largest number of children arrived at the camp in 1942. 
the majority of them were Jewish children. And now their shoes have been saved as a memorial. And uh, it's very interesting. They're, they're conserving the shoes of these kids that were piled up. Um, that's just a, a historical fact that they're trying to recover memory. I'll be back after the break. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel. One minute of Torah. In this week's Torah portion of Tolda, we meet Isaac and Rebecca's twin boys, Esau and Jacob. The two are as different as can be. Esau is a hunter, while Jacob is a Torah scholar. In addition to hunting animals in the field, Esau was adept at an additional sort of trapping, with his mouth. He would ask his father pious-sounding questions of Torah law, which led his father to believe that he was actually interested in keeping the commandments scrupulously. In reality, though, he was just putting up a show. In our own pursuit of holiness and good deeds, we are also sometimes trapped by an inner Esau. This voice does not always boldly declare its intention to stop us from serving God. Sometimes it comes up with all sorts of pious reasons and excuses to stall our advancement. The way to recognize if this is our inner Jacob or our inner Esau is to check what the bottom line is. Does this voice just sound righteous or does it actually lead us to doing something good? The truly righteous voice will lead us to increase in practical acts of kindness and holiness. With your Iron Chairman of Torah, this is Chav Isaacovich. Hi, this is Jay Shapiro. And on this part of the program, I do uh, what I like to call under the radar. These are items that don't appear in the front pages of the paper. You don't really see them on television either. Some have uh, just add color to Jewish life, and some are more important. Uh, so the readers can decide themselves whether it's just color or importance. I'll start off with the latest Palestinian ploy. This is something, by the way, which I put under the category of important. It appears that the Palestinian leadership, in addition to its widely acknowledged repressive and corrupt dictatorial regime and its penchant for illegally and systematically inciting and financing and glorifying terror. So it turns out that the Palestinian leadership is now venturing into a new field, the international legal field. It is regrettably attempting to further extend its destructive influence among the only milieu, milieu that still naively takes it seriously and I'm talking about the international community. The Palestinian leadership is not satisfied with having abused, manipulated, and politicized major United Nations bodies, such, such as the UN General Assembly, the UN Human Rights Council, the UN's edu Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, called by its initials UNESCO, and finally, the International Criminal Court, the ICC. Now, the Palestinian terrorists now has set their sights on targeting the United Nations' major and highly respected judicial body, which the Hague, I should say Hague, it's in Holland, 
the Hague-based International Court of Justice, known as the ICJ. This is an organization that has a lot of standard on international level. Now, what they're doing is a misguided and uh, fanatic attempt to turn the ICC into a, another more Israeli, another one of the more Israeli bashing international institutions. In other words, they want to take a respected organization on an international level and use it to hammer against Israel. In other words, to, in addition to the regular annual shopping list of false political allegations directed to the court against Israel, the Palestinians are now requesting that the court, by means of a resolution that they initiated at the United Nations General Assembly Special Political Decolonization Committee, to weigh the legal consequences of the prolonged annexation of what they claim to be Palestinian territory. In other words, I'm talking about the, what they call the West Bank, or what we call Judea and Samaria. Now, they're doing this despite the fact there has never been any internationally accepted legal determination that there exists Palestinian territory as such. Similarly, this question remains an agreed negotiating issue by the Palestinians themselves, pursuant to internationally endorsed Israel-Palestinian Oslo Accords back in 1993. <coughs> in addition, the Palestinian leadership is asking the International Court to examine Israel's alleged crime of altering the demographic composition, character, and status of the holy city of Jerusalem, claiming the city to be solely Palestinian. But more curiously, in this request to the World Court, they were attempting to invent what they believe to be a new, curious international status of prolonged occupation. They are asking the court to determine the extent to which such a non-existent status of prolonged occupation has legal consequences for states and for the United Nations. In fact, no such status to, is recognized by international law. There is no such thing legally known as extended occupation. Even the International Red Cross, the Committee of the Red Cross, which is universally acknowledged to be the ultimate arbiter of what can constitutes international humanitarian law, has never determined a time limit for the occupation of territory. <coughs> there is no such thing as extended occupation. The Palestinians are now trying to create it. On the contrary, a major ICRC study um, 
involving a series of meetings by international experts in the field of international humanitarian law, they put out a report entitled Occupation and Other Forms of Administration of Foreign Territory. They put this report back in 2012, and they wrote that determining precisely when an occupation has ended is deemed to be a very difficult task, unquote. This study went on to recognize that nothing under international humanitarian law would prevent occupying powers from embarking on long-term occupation. It is thus puzzling. I'm sorry. It's puzzling how those states that enable the adoption of such such a request a request by the UN General Political Committee could have supported such an obviously flawed and manipulative resolution. Clearly, then, observation of international norms and customs in administering territory acquired during armed conflict may well be legitimate questions for judicial review if dealt with in a non-discriminate and unbiased manner. Now, one must assume and trust that the uh, IJC, the the, uh, uh, International Criminal Court, is respected, and it's an international judicial body, and one can expect that it will not permit its respected stature to be politically prejudiced, abused, and manipulated by this new irresponsible Palestinian political ploy in the United Nations General Assembly. But, by the same token, one may wonder when, if ever, the international community that supported such an initiative will come to the realization that it itself is being abused and manipulated by an irresponsible and unethical Palestinian leadership intent on on using every means possible not to achieve peace or normalization or to achieve good neighborly relations with Israel, but rather they continue to demonize, delegitimize, and criminalize Israel. Now that's something that's under the uh, radar, but it shouldn't be too far under the radar. People should be aware of it. Now I want to go on to another subject which is really under the radar, Uh, and I'm actually surprised that I found an article about it in the way in the back of a local newspaper. And um, there is a group of Hasidim led by a Rebbe, a a leader, uh, and they're they're from a city in... uh, not in Hungary, they're in Romania, called Satmar. And they're known to be among the most, um, I, don't, I can't think of a good word without insulting them, they're radically right-wing 
Uh, I don't want to say fanatic. They don't consider themselves fanatic. I know a lot of the Hasidim of Satmar Persia, very nice people, but they have a very negative uh, feeling toward the state of Israel. They feel that you can't make a Jewish state until the Messiah comes. Meantime, you can stay wherever you are, including Brooklyn. Now, the head of this is the Grand Rabbi Aaron Teitelbaum, and um, he spoke about two weeks ago in a uh, in a place, a small town north of New York City called Kiryas Noel. Uh, I'm sorry, Kiryas Yoel. Yoel uh, Tenenbaum was the Satmar Rebbe who was saved from Europe and uh, came to live in Brooklyn. Uh, I had a uh, um, an uncle through marriage who was a chassid, a follower of the Rebbe, and uh, he actually took me once to there on a Friday night to what they called the Rebbe's Tish. That's when the Hasidim come, and the Rebbe gives, uh, makes a mozi, he says a blessing on the bread, and he gives out uh, food to his followers, since it's considered a big thing to get some of the food that the Rebbe leaves over. In Yiddish, it's called shrayim, which means leftovers. And I remember my wife's uncle, who taught in the Satmi Yeshiva, Got me to be one of the first persons when the when the uh, shrine was handed out. And anyhow, that's just background. Now he spoke about two weeks ago, and he said Trumpism has infiltrated the Jewish camp and twisted many minds. Now the Rebbe's words came two days after the U.S. midterm elections in New York, during which Democrat Kathy Hochul, or Hochul, I'm not sure how she pronounces it, H-O-C-H-U-L, she won the New York governorship, beating out Jewish Republican Trump ally Lee Zeldin, who had very strong support among New York's uh, voting population, the Jewish, and. Um, the woman had been acting governor since uh, 2021, August, after the previous governor, Andrew Cuomo, resigned in allegations of sexual uh, harassment. Now, it's interesting, you have to realize something. <coughs> the Satmar community, like many Hasidic communities, which contain thousands of people, they vote according to the way that Rebbe tells them to vote. And what happens in particular is that politicians who want to get this guaranteed massive vote go to those communities and they promise something. Uh, whatever it is they promise, uh, paving the streets, building new synagogues, whatever it is they promise the Rebbe, the head of the community, he tells the Hasidim, and they vote on block for the person making the promise. That's the way it works. Now, the uh, according to Satmar headquarters on Twitter, the Rebbe blamed many in his community for being involved in what he called Trump Mishugas, which means Trump madness. And he went on to say, of course, needed somebody has to translate it. When we think of Trumpism, it's so anti antithetical. Judaism and infiltrates our Jewish camp by a gang of hacks 
who raise their heads. <coughs> now, he <coughs> specifically singled out the use of modern technology as a distraction from Torah and the ultimate cause of Trump Mishugas, Trump madness in the community. And he went on to say those who are connected to uh, WhatsApp as opposed to Torah, that's where it's coming from. He lamented the viral nature of the Trumpist school of thought, saying that those involved are spreading incitement and are unfortunately successful and brainwashing large parts of our communities. People can't think straight anymore. It's very painful. I was trying to keep quiet about it until now because I realized there is no one to talk to. Unquote. The the Rebbe has not always come out on the side of the Jewish political left, although his views on technology have remained consistent over the years. He has strictly forbidden his followers to own computers or smartphones. (laughs) He is also firmly opposed to Zionism, and according to a 2013 Ynet article, referred to the proposed draft of ultra-Orthodox men into the Israeli army as, and I quote, a decree worse than the annihilation of the Jewish people, unquote. And that is the position of the Satmar Rebbe, of course, there are Satmar Hasidim, followers of Rebbe here in Israel, who don't go into the army. Uh, it's, uh, it's a question of uh, their religious viewpoint. So when I read an article like this, uh, I think to myself, uh, perhaps uh, cynically, that the Rebbe has been influ- influenced by, in particular by uh, Democratic politicians in New York, who must have promised something to the community. I mean, it's known in politics that you know, sometimes get something and return for a vote. But this is apparently what happened, and he really has a large block of people that follow his decrees, and it probably made a difference. I didn't see the final numbers, but it probably made a difference in the state of New York. Now, Going on to a totally different uh, subject, uh, for the first time since World War II, the Hungarian city of Debrecen held an ordination ceremony for an Orthodox rabbi. Uh, I, I visited Debrecen, had once had a very large community, Jewish community before the war, I visited there about 20 years ago, and interesting. It turns out a gentleman named Rabbi Shmuel Fagan, F-A-I-G-E-N, was installed as head of the local Jewish community, and also serves a rabbi of the Hungarian Jewish Association and Chabad, the Lubavitch Movement. This historic ceremony took place about two weeks ago at a synagogue in Debrecen, and was followed by the official opening of the Jewish House, a new uh, center for religious and cultural programs featuring Debrecen's first kosher restaurant. Uh, 
and the um, there was the there were the chief rabbi named Shlomo Kovas, who's the head of the Hungarian Jewish Association, recognized the local Jewish community for its cooperation, which led to the city's first Orthodox rabbinate ordination in almost eighty years. The Jewish community there has the Jewish community there has a a, a president. Apparently, it's uh, well funded. And he went, <coughs> and he went on to say, <coughs> Jews, Jews live throughout Hungary, not only in Budapest. Our goal is not to rest until every Hungarian Jew is given the opportunity to return to and appreciate the faith of their ancestors. And the uh, one of the visitors at the ceremony was Israel, Israel's Ashkenazi chief rabbi, and he, 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 uh, he put up a, a Holocaust memorial plaque next to the synagogue. The, uh, and it, it really is something that we have a revised Jewish community in a place that was wiped out during the war. I'll be back after the break. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Twitter is in the news lately, and lots of folks weighing the value and risks of social media. Getting your point across in a tweet is not always easy. An Israeli company called Trinity Audio has got some ideas on how to help you use audio to express your views in the Twitterverse. The company has created and is testing a bot that they say can be used to automatically create audio content, allowing folks to listen to their favorite information. The bot has said it worked in more than 100 languages, with English and Spanish being used the most. Early data shows the bot is mostly featured on news and finance threads, allowing folks to listen to diverse and interesting content. For more information on the high-tech world today, visit IsraelTechTalk.com. With your INTR Tech Minute, I'm Bob Aiello. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to touch upon a number of subjects that are not related to each other, but they're pretty much under the headlines, but I think that the listeners should be aware of them. The first item has to do uh, with uh, what was taken, a a summary was taken at uh, Harvard University and other universities about campus anti-Semitism. By a wide margin, Harvard University for the academic year 2021-2022 led the nation in anti-Semitic attacks on college and university campuses as reported in the anti-Semitism monitor uh, called AMCH, Amcha, which really in Hebrew means your people. And they put out a report uh, a few months ago called Campus and Anti-Semitism and the Assault on Jewish Identity. Now, this happened, these things happened at Harvard 25 times, 
University of Chicago 13, Tufts University 12, UCLA 10, and Rutgers also 10. It's possible that Harvard could lose its number one position if it removed its imprimatur from Students for Justice in Palestine, a documented front group for the anti-Semitic genocidal mission of Hamas. In other words, this group on campus has on its stationery the uh, imprimatur of the university itself, Harvard University. This group, the Students for Justice in Palestine, was created in 2000, the year 2000, by a supporter of Hamas called Hatem Batsian and a pro-Hamas activist named Sehai Shingavi. The point was to wage a campus war against Israel on behalf of Hamas. Also, Hamas is the most significant financial supporter of Students for Justice in Palestine through American Muslims for Palestine, known as AMP, and also established by this same Batsian in 2005. In other words, these groups have been set up far as back as 2005 to get funding and to provide it for anti-Semitic propaganda on campuses. What is most important for all Jewish students, faculty, and administrators in Harvard University to remember is that Hamas is an anti-Semitic genocidal organization. Article 7 of the Hamas Charter, which has never been revoked, requires every member and supporter of Hamas, which includes every member of the Harvard University Students for Justice in Palestine, to murder every Jew on earth. Neither Israel nor Zionists are mentioned in Article 7. It's an attack on Jews. Students for Justice in Palestine is not some benign student affinity group notwithstanding any public relations, social justice, or human rights business that they talk about. It's all propaganda to obfuscate its purpose. As a documented front group for Hamas on campus, the Students for Justice in Palestine exists solely to provide Hamas anti-Semitic genocidal agenda in university and college communities such as Cambridge. As as such, it presents a clear and present danger to all Jewish students, Jewish faculty, and Jewish administrators at Harvard University. Placing Harvard University imprimatur on the stationery of Students for Justice in Palestine is in effect putting Harvard University's imprimatur on the worldwide Jew killing, which is the express purpose to Hamas at its creation as Students for Justice in Palestine. 
Of course, it does not have to be so. Ford University, faced with student just for Palestine's embrace of Hamas's singular anti-Semitic genocidal purpose, has banned it from its campus. Incidentally, Fordham University, if I'm not mistaken, is a Catholic university. They banned the students for justice Palestine from the campus. The courts of New York State have upheld Fordham's decision, which is courageous. Unless Harvard University, uh, uh, like being the number one ranking in anti-Semitic activities, removing Harvard's imprimatur from the Students for Justice in Palestine is something that the university should pursue. Uh, moving on to a related subject, uh, uh, I want to say a few words about the fact that Palestinian representatives at the UN are pushing a resolution that argues the continued nature of the Israeli occupation is de facto annexation. They, a vote was held several weeks ago bringing the question of the legality of what they call Israel's occupation of land beyond the 1967 lines. And they brought this to the International Court of Justice. I have mentioned this on the previous uh, programs, I think even on the section of this program. The, uh, they pushed this university uh, resolution I'm sorry, they pushed this U.N. Um, re- resolution by was pushed by Palestinian representatives. It was officially proposed by Nicaragua, since the Palestinians are observers, not members of states of the U.N., and asked the International Court of Justice considered that the continuing nature of Israeli occupation is in de facto annexation. This is something that I've spoken about before, but more information has become available, and I want to share it with the uh, listeners. The... uh, the uh, the UN General Assembly will vote next month. If that is approved, which also likely the question will be brought before the International Court of Justice. And the uh, it's interesting that uh, the Palestinians are pushing at the UN to essentially have uh, Israel accused of annexation and uh, the um, the American uh, Secretary of State discussed the matter a couple weeks ago with the head of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, uh, but uh, he tried to discourage them from uh, uh, pursuing this uh, business of uh, bringing Israel before the International Court of Justice at The Hague, but apparently, according to diplomatic sources, it did not... uh, Changed. They didn't change their opinion. So uh, the the international community is now being essentially uh, approached and lobbied by the Palestinians to accuse Israel of uh, not only occupation but annexation. So what will come of this? We don't know. 
Now, since I'm talking about the Palestinians, I'll say something else. Uh, according to uh, reports, Palestinians are extremely worried about the possible rise of the far right to uh, power in Israel after the, the election several weeks ago. The uh, It's interesting. The... Uh, the uh, Somebody called uh, Ahmed Aldek, now Dick, is a senior advisor to the Palestinian Minister of Foreign Affairs, said that we consider the elections an internal Israeli affair. The results of the election will have a direct impact on the Palestinians in particular and the conflict in general. The uh, it's funny, the, this uh, spokesman for the Palestinians says he hopes that the emergence of the new parties in Israel and the government will make Israel a real party for peace. He said we want to see a partner that's prepared and willing to engage in a peace process with the Palestinian partner. We hope that these elections will lay the foundation for the revival of the peace process, which is really interesting. Israel has been trying to revive the peace process for a number of years, and the Palestinians have refused. The uh, referring to public opinion polls that show a sharp increase in the popularity of the far-right religious Zionist party, uh, the PA looks very seriously at the rise of a right-wing party in Israel. He's referring to the uh, religious Zionist party, which is headed by Bezalel Smutrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir. The, the Palestinians say that this is a dangerous indication that will have a very negative impact on Israeli-Palestinian relations. The, uh, the, the religious Zionist party, by the way, is the third largest party in the Knesset now. And the Palestinian uh, leadership went on to say, if these extremists come to power and form an alliance with the Netanyahu, They'll open a door to escalation of Israeli aggression against the Palestinian people. And he went on to say, the speaker uh, for the Palestinian Authority went on to say that the Palestinian Authority will continue to demand that the international community work toward achieving a two-state solution to the conflict, notwithstanding the results of the elections in Israel. Now, the, uh, the international, commun international community, including the United States, uh, supports this two-state solution, something which we know it's, it's impossible. The, uh, and uh, the Speaker for the Palestinian Authority acknowledged the fact that the recent wave of violence in the West Bank plays into the hands of the right-wing parties and candidates in Israel. However, he blamed Israel for instigating the violence to avoid fulfilling its commitment toward the peace process. So that is what the Palestinian leadership is saying about the elections in Israel. In other words, according to them, they would love to have peace, 
but the fact that a right-wing party has risen to a position in power is one of the things preventing the peace. So this kind of propaganda is comes out of the Palestinian Authority all the time. Um, it seems to be accepted by a lot of people, but I wanted the listeners to be aware that this is going on full-time. Now, I'm going to change the subject completely because we're under the radar, and uh, I want to uh, talk about a totally different subject. I want to talk about why Israeli hospital doctors and nurses use slang for medical terms instead of their real Hebrew names, which is a rather interesting topic. Uh, the... Uh, uh, it's it, it, as it's been reported, Eliezer Ben Yehuda, the father of modern Hebrew, would probably get sick if he went to an Israeli hospital. And according to an article in the latest issue of the Hebrew language journal Harifuah, Harifuah means um, cure. Harifuah in Hebrew means cure. So it's a uh, it's a medical magazine. And according to this journal, doctors and nurses in the Jewish state prefer using universal or slang names for many medical terms instead of their their given Hebrew names. They have Hebrew names, but the doctors and nurses prefer using slang terms. The uh, the uh, the uh, two uh, professors in um, medical centers here in Israel wrote in this medical magazine that that medicine and the doctors and nurses who practice it are a conservative bunch. Many of them also were born or studied abroad, so they're not likely to memorize the names of objects and terms used daily into Hebrew. The um, because they studied abroad, and many of them were born abroad. Israel everyday medical slang includes foreign names. Some of these terms have already been translated into Hebrew, but they're rarely in use. The um, back in the, in uh, nineteen far back in nineteen seventy one, the editor of Harifuah, the Journal of the Israel Medical Association. Uh, wrote an article that bemoaned the use of English and other foreign terms in medical practice here in Israel. Among the examples of foreign words used by doctors are are stung, the thin rubber strip tied on the upper arm to help find a vein. The term comes from the German word for stasis, which means to stop blood from circulating. Uh, by the way, the word is S-T-A-U-N, Staung, I guess I, I hope I pronounce it correctly. Uh, there's, there's a Yiddish word, Spadl, used to indicate a wooden tongue a depressor, which originally meant a shovel. Uh, catheter, the English word for the tube that drains urine, is still used in Israel hospi- Israeli hospitals, even though Jerusalem's Hebrew Language Academy gave it the name Santar. Uh, Pinset, 
which is, means tweezers, has been given the Hebrew name milketet, from the root to collect. A, gal, a gauze pad is a woven piece of cotton that was given its name by doctors in Napoleon's army when he stood opposite the dates of Gaza, according to the, the authors of this uh, book, of this magazine article. It was translated by the Hebrew Academy language as asplanit, but is never used in clinics or hospitals. They still use the word given by the Napoleon's army doctors. A Penrose drain is the tube that allows fluids to drain from a surgical site. It was named for Charles Bingham Penrose, who was a gynecologist born in Philadelphia in 1862. Penrose came down with tuberculosis and was sent to Wyoming to recover, but got into trouble in a war between the Turner's Center was nearly executed. He ended his days as a doctor who opened a clinic for animals in the Philadelphia Zoo. The stent, which supports weak coronary arteries after the fatty plaque inside is removed by angioplasty, was named for Charles Stent, a 19th century English physician. The term is always used by medical staffers instead of the Hebrew term. The tourniquet used to stop bleeding in a womb comes a French one. French word tourner for turn. Piece of cloth was first used for this purpose by a French surgeon named Etienne Morel in the war in 1674. Feeding by what's called a zonda or nasogastric tube is carried by threading a plastic tube through the nose or mouth into the esophagus and to the stomach. The term comes to the German Stundlin, means to perform in-depth examination. It will never be replaced by the Hebrew Language Academy's word, Mehdar. Unfortunately, they just go ahead with the names that they learn from the foreigners. Then there are medical terms named for the inventors. There's pasteurization, which is named for Louis Pasteur, and mesmerize, originally meaning to hypnotize, named for Franz Anto Mesmer, born in 1734. The, uh, this, this something called the APGAR test, A-P-G-A-R, used to score the health of newborn infants. It was named for Virginia Apgar, an anesthesiologist born in New Jersey in 1919. Uh, in 1919. Kocher forceps, K-O-C-H-E-R, used by surgeons, got their name from Emil Theodor a Swiss surgeon. Uh, I don't know exactly what year. Forget about teaching Israeli surgeons the uh, the word for what they call a uh, culture is the Hebrew word that's called metashek, which nobody uses. So the authors of this article conclude 
that the richness of the Hebrew's language is not always expressed in the daily routine of doctors and nurses. If, if there's a Hebrew translation, it will often not be used at all. The stethoscope, uh, the uh, virus and reflex, even though there are Hebrew equivalents for all of them, stethoscope, virus, and reflex will remain in use for many years in Israeli hospitals. Uh, if Eliezer ben Yehuda, the father of modern Hebrew, were with us, he would probably invent in his mind quite a few medical terms, even though in principle he never himself involved in translating medical terms. So interesting, the Hebrew dictionary, the classic Hebrew dictionary, by uh, Ben Yehuda doesn't contain a modern terms. I don't know, maybe he simply didn't think about them. I don't know. It's a, it's a tough question. At any rate, uh, that is what is happening in the world of uh, Hebrew language in the medical terms. And finally, a totally different subject, but one that I really think is important. Israel now has relations with Morocco, and they signed a member memorandum of understanding, an MOU, on water treat. It was signed between Morocco's National Office of Electricity and Drinking Water and the National Water Company of Israel called Mikarot. The, uh, well, this signing will establish a framework for the development of cooperation between this Moroccan institution and this Israeli institution in the area of drinking water and liquid sanitation, both of which are extremely important. And uh, this will allow an Israeli company and a Moroccan company to work together to promote joint cooperation, cooperation activities in these fields of seawater desalination, performance improvement, water sanitation, digital systems management, research and develop, and innovation. The collaboration between two countries' water authorities is what might be called, forgive the, uh, the joke, or uh, it's a drop in the bucket of their widespread business collaboration resulting from the 2020 Abraham Accords. Since then, numerous deals, investments, and agreements have been made between Morocco and Israel, and that can only be a path toward more peace. I'll be back after the break. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel. And though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Arba, Israel. And why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? 
because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover. Hey, this is Nicole Eko from Malmo, Sweden. It gets pretty cold here in Sweden, so I love cuddling up with a warm cup of tea while I listen to Israel News Talk Radio. Bruce Brill here from Nokdim, Israel, in Judea, the homeland of the Jews, and I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, everybody, this is Frank Norris from Tennessee. Me and my dog Buster really love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. <laughs> You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I want to start this segment of the program by uh, quoting some excerpts from an article I recently read, written by Michael Freund. Michael Freund served as Deputy Communications Director under Benjamin Netanyahu during his first term as office, and he's been a rather prolific writer since then, and most of the, what he writes is of great interest. Uh, but the article that I want to more or less uh, quote from uh, is something which I think is important for world jewelry. He says, uh, he starts by saying there's a, new, a news item which you may have miss, missed, which is as revealing as is it makes one angry. Several weeks ago, an Israeli woman visited the Temple Mount. Now, she was very moved by the experience on setting foot on the site where Jews had longed to return to for almost 2,000 years. What happened was this young woman suddenly, uh, just out of, uh, out of feeling, burst into song, and she started singing Hatikva, which is Israel's national anthem. Now, as she sang, she was greeted by an unpleasant and rather unwelcome surprise because an Israeli policeman asked her to stop. Uh, the article didn't say whether she was with a group or whether the other people raised their voices or not, but the impression given is that she was the only one singing. It also doesn't uh, say how loud she was singing, but she was singing loud enough, apparently, to be heard by a policeman. The uh, the So what happened was... An Israeli policeman asked her to stop, and in a short video, which is available on Arut Sheva, which captured the rest of her interaction with the police, we're given a glimpse of the inane situation, a situation that prevails now under Israeli sovereignty at the holiest place in the world for the Jewish people. In this clip, she can, um, she can, this young lady can be seen asking the policeman, which red regulation did I violate? And is singing Hatikva considered a religious ritual? Because the Jews have agreed that they're not going to have any religious rituals on the Temple Mount, which is a problem, by the way, unto itself. 
At any rate, she asked, did I violate a regulation by singing Hatikva, a religious ritual? Now, these are actually legitimate queries. Uh, the uh, question is, uh, we should, one would expect that she get some kind of a reply to these direct questions. And then a, a second policeman then shows up on this video and explains to the young lady that in any act that the police deem to be possible as a threat to public order on the Temple Mount is prohibited due to the sensitivity of the locale. In other words, the uh, policemen decide what's permissible and not permissible. They decide themselves. Now, the young lady looked around quizzically, noting that there is no one in sight nor any sign of disturbance. The policeman nevertheless informed her she's being detained, in other words, arrested, even though no apparent law was broken and had followed the first policeman's command to stop singing. Then she is seen on this video being led away. This outrage encapsulates everything that is wrong with the current state of affairs on the Temple Mount. It presents the soon-to-be-formed new Israeli government with a clear test as to whether pre-election promises about restoring and preserving the Jewish character of the state will in fact be kept. After all, what could possibly be more innocent than a patriotic young Jewish lady giving voice to her love of the country by singing the country's national anthem? One would assume that in a democratic state which upholds the exercise of free speech as a fundamental right, this decision to hum a tune or even to sing it lightly on the Temple Mount would hardly warrant police intervention. And yet, as we see from the video, it apparently does. By contrast, when Muslim Arab worshippers hoist Hamas flags on the mount and lustily chant with blood and with spirit, we will redeem you, O Palestine, the police fail to take action. This is an absurd state of affairs where Jews are openly discriminated against in Israel's capital on the holiest uh, place in Judaism is the result of years of government apathy of governments both of the left and of the right and it is time for this to change. Jewish visits to the Temple Mount, the holiest place in Judaism, are limited to just four hours a day five days a week. No similar restrictions apply to Muslims. Jews cannot ascend the mount on their Sabbath. Muslims can on Friday. Jews are heavily discouraged from praying on the mount 
there have been cases in which the police detained Israelis for saying a blessing before drinking water or reciting Shema. Muslims, by contrast, can pray as they wish. <coughs> the bottom line is simply this. There is no moral, no legal, or any philosophical justification for this prejudicial policy against Jews, which has no place in a free society. Now, to be fair, in recent years, the government has allowed the number of Jews visiting the Mount to increase. During the high holidays, uh, two months ago, a little over 7,000 Jews ascended to Temple Mount, including about 4,600 during the holiday of Sukkot. That's an increase of 33% over the previous year. Uh, on Election Day, a couple of weeks ago, 378 Jews were permitted to visit the site, more than double the number the last time Israelis went to the ballot box, which wasn't too long ago. But you compare these really small numbers to the tens of thousands of Muslims who attend Friday prayers each week on the Temple Mount, these numbers, numbers pale in comparison. Simply put, the Jewish people's basic right to freedom of worship and expression of the, uh, of the way they want to express themselves on the Temple Mount are being trampled underfoot in a manner unheard of anywhere else in the Western world. Now, there is a coalition now being formed, a government coalition. The coalition information has an opportunity to change this. It has been recently pointed out over half the members of the new coalition government have themselves visited Temple Mount. So they, they themselves know firsthand about the intolerable situation that exists there. So and the bottom line is that it is imperative for the new government to move and to move quickly to correct the steady erosion of Jewish rights on the Temple Mount and find a way to enable those Jews who wish to pray there to be able to do so well, of course, safeguarding freedom of access to everybody else, not just the Jews. The, denying Jews their elementary right to commune with their creator on the historical Temple Mount for fear of offending others is nothing less than a stain on Israel's democracy, and the sooner as that it is, and the sooner that it is removed, the better. So I more or less uh, quoted a lot from, uh, as I said, from uh, Michael Freud, but I think the point is an important one, and I wanted to share it with the listeners. Another uh, subject, a different subject, that I wanted to comment on 
was a um, the uh, that um, a resolution was passed in the U.S. Senate, first time ever such a resolution recognizing the contribution of the Israeli American community has been to the United States. It was a bipartisan resolution introduced by a senator, a Democratic and a Republican senator, senator uh, who are the co-chairs of the bipartisan Senate caucus on Black-Jewish relations. Truth of the matter is, until I saw this article, I wasn't aware of a bipartisan Senate caucus in black Jewish relations, but apparently there is one. Now, the Israeli-American population, that is, Israelis who live in the United States, is more than 800,000 people. And in the resolution, it says this is a vibrant immigrant community whose values prompt them to contribute heavily to the welfare and diversity of the United States. And this resolution recognizes the many contributions of Israeli Americans to American life, honors Israeli-American culture and heritage as helping strengthen the bonds between the United States and Israel. And in specific terms, the resolution cites the Israeli-American impact on health sciences, pharmaceuticals, disaster relief, astrophysics, mathematics, chemistry, aerospace, biotech, agriculture, and internet technologies. Also, the resolution applauds Israeli Americans and Jews for advancing civil rights, equal protection under the law, justice for all, and particularly for the most vulnerable. It condemns all forms of anti-Semitism, discrimination, and violence, aimed to marginalize or disenfranchise members of the Israeli community broadly and individuals of Israeli or Jewish origin, condemns anti-Semitism that may infringe upon the ability of Israeli Americans, other individuals to celebrate Israeli-American heritage and a deep connection to Israel. So this is uh, what was just passed, and it's notable that with the rise of uh, anti-Semitism and national origin discrimination against Israeli Americans, uh, this is pretty much a time for leaders to stand up with a voice of moral clarity. So the they went on when they when they had this. Uh, uh, commemoration, they condemn incidents of anti-Semitism, bullying, and uh, interesting, this is uh, something that went on, and the uh, the woman, the senator who pushed this uh, was a woman, a Democratic senator from Nevada named Jackie Rosen, and she said, and I quote, as the third Jewish woman to ever serve in the U.S. Senate, I'm proud to help introduce this resolution 
to honor the culture, heritage, legacy of Israeli Americans at a time of rising anti-Semitism the Pax Israeli Americans. This resolution recognizes their contribution to the U.S., condemns all forms of hate and discrimination. The uh, That is the, pretty much the news item, which is interesting, but what struck me uh, in particular is that the new item said that the, the Israeli-American population is estimated to be more than 800,000 people. In other words, more than three-quarters of a million uh, uh, Israelis, I don't know if you can call them Israelis or call them former Israelis, are living in the United States, and they've uh, contributed to all these wonderful fields from health science and biotech and agriculture technology and all those things. But the thing that strikes me that three-quarters of a million Israelis could be contributing to the exact same fields here in Israel. And for whatever reason, they have become Israeli-Americans. Each one has his personal reason. It sort of, I don't want to say it hurts me. That's too strong a word. But the very fact that the three-quarters of a million Israelis could be contributing to these fields here in Israel and instead are doing it so in the United States, with all due respect to the United States, is a tragedy of the Jewish people. How this has come about is really immaterial. It's not the subject of my program. The very fact that there are people who are contributing to other societies, as nice as that may be, I'd be much happier personally if they were contributing to the society here in Israel. The next item is one that is way, way below the headlines, but I think it should be of interest to the listeners. Uh, tucked in the far corner of a large, brightly lit exhibition hall, on the ground floor of the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco, there's a delicate-looking piece of art with a strong political message. At first glance, it appears to be three circular vases with flowers in them. The ceramic vases sit on shelves attached to the wall, and colorful collages hang among them. On closer inspection, however, visitors will notice the flowers are made out of paper, and affixed to the each vase is a large image of the Palestinian flag printed on a foam board. A nearby label written by the curators of the exhibit is entitled Tikkun, for the cosmos, 
the community and ourselves, explains that the piece was inspired by a conversation the artist had with a Palestinian man. As a, uh, the plants are native to Palestine, a place which he can no longer access due to the ongoing conflict in the region. This is what the Palestinian man told the artist. Now, does a work of art that is sympathetic to the Palestinian struggle for statehood belong in a Jewish museum? That's an interesting question. The, uh, the Contemporary Jewish Museum in San Francisco is a member of the Council of American Jewish Museums, a network of 76 museums, believe it or not, across the country. The, the management does not have guidelines about the kind of art that its member museums can and cannot display. I think the whole thing is very interesting. And until next week, Jay Shapiro signing off. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dots, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dots from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.